from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. It's a conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, community, and society, and your private self, who you are as an individual, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. Please visit totalleadership.org to find all kinds of information and tools that we use to help people and organizations find greater harmony among those different parts of life and and how to improve performance in them by finding greater harmony. It can be done, folks. Check it out, totalleadership.org. You can hear new episodes of this show every Monday at noon Eastern time on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as I am me at Stu Friedman, S-T-E-W-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. Well, thanks in part to the global pandemic, many of us are feeling quite isolated, anxious, uh, uncertain. Uh, there's many things happening in the world that are causing uh, these these large-scale social problems, uh, working from home, holding meetings on Zoom and other video platforms, it doesn't really take the place of being with other people, or does it? Um, as our human interactions become, well, perhaps thinner, less frequent, uh, our meaningful connections to each other seem to be fraying, well, that affects our happiness, our productivity, our health. My guest today says that her research shows that there, there's a solution, and it's one that anyone can implement, whether we're talking about a large corporation or a local PTA group uh, and anything and anywhere in between, any, any opportunity for people to come together. I am delighted to introduce Christine Porath, whose new book is called Mastering Community. The surprising ways coming together moves us from surviving to thriving. Christine, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you back. Christine Porath is a tenured professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. She's also the author of the bestseller, Mastering Civility, which is what we talked about last time you were on the show a couple of years ago. And she's also the co-author of The Cost of Bad Behavior. Uh, she's a consultant who works with companies, organizations to help people and communities thrive. She's spoken to and worked with companies like Google, uh, United, the United Nations and the World Bank, Microsoft, Genentech, and a bunch of others. Well, Christine, let's, let's start by, can you tell us about the Mighty Porafs? Who are they? Sure, the Mighty Porath. Uh, that's my brother, Mike Porath, who founded the Mighty, uh, along with his wife, my sister-in-law, Sarah, and their four children. Annabelle is the, my niece uh, and goddaughter, who really inspired uh, Mike's vision for this healthcare community. Uh, Annabelle was diagnosed at two years old 
um, actually at UPenn um, with having Duke 15, which is a rare chromosome disorder. Uh, they were trying to get health answers for her for a very long time. And it was this chromosome test that revealed this disease. And uh, there wasn't a lot of information out there for him and for them. And they stumbled upon some stories from parents on doing a Google search that really helped give them insight as to what it would be like to raise Annabelle and how they could help her be happy and independent. And uh, really what they turned to was other people, uh, parents and caregivers for inspiration. And so it ended up spawning them to found the mighty Mike Sarah, and it's gone on to become the largest healthcare community in the world. Hmm. So it's been really fun to watch that, uh, you know, evolve over time. And you dedicate this wonderful work to them. Yeah. I've learned so much from them. Uh, you know, they, he could write his own book for sure. He's a better writer. He's a journalist by training. So, but I, I have uh, had the pleasure of kind of having a front seat to see them, you know, grow the mighty and particular the culture of the mighty, but I've seen what it's done for people in terms of not just getting healthcare information, which was, you know, kind of the idea for it, but as he realized it was really solving the problem of isolation and loneliness uh, for people. And Mm -hmm. so um, I think that that's true of not only people that get a health diagnosis, but a a lot of others as well. Right. So, uh, you know, even before the, the, the physical and social isolation wrought by the, uh, the global pandemic, there was so much concern about how fewer and fewer people felt a sense of um, connection or belonging to to their communities um, as as in days of old, um, mm-hmm. and how you know this this isolation was wreaking havoc on our our social and, and psychological experiences of living in the modern world. You've now done a deep dive into. Uh, the rise of you know, new technologies for communicating, remote work, our always-on work culture, and the mental health crisis in our society. Um, how does community serve as a kind of solution to this to this set of problems? Well, I think, uh, you know, we had this loneliness epidemic, as you mentioned, before the pandemic. And what I was surprised about was Tony Schwartz and I found that 65% of people reported they had no sense of community at work even prior to this. Uh, So I think the idea is that organizations could be bright spots for people, you know, that they can help provide a sense of connection for people, um, even if we're working remotely, you know, at distance, but these are people that we can plug into that ideally care about us, that are concerned about us, that may help us achieve, you know, goals, not only work goals, uh, but like you do work on our life, you know, the rest of our life and our personal well-being, physical well-being, things like that. Well, Let's step back and if you could just define the term community as you use it in your research and practice. And and then I've got uh, about 30 other questions about that, (laughs) not all of which we will get to, but let's start with that. What is community? 
Well, I call it a group of people that care about or are concerned for others' well-being. Um, and so, you know, within that, I'm sure that you could rule out some groups of people um, and, you know, that, that don't have that sense of concern for other. But um, for me personally, uh, that's the way that I defined it. People who care about each other. Mm-hmm. And... Um... Anyone who has been around uh, the last few years and paying attention can see that uh, there is a severe degradation of that quality in our social lives. And it's not only born of, you know, the, the digital media that, uh, you know, are the basis for so much of human interaction. Now there is the political climate. There is the great fear of the other and of our, you know, destruction of our natural habitat and war uh, mm-hmm. and famine. It's, it's terrifying. And uh, it's becoming more so for more people, especially young people. Um, so what you have written about and provided so many wonderful examples of in uh, Mastering Community is so important now and I'm, and imagine in your work pretty challenging to to actually bring to bear and to make change happen in organizations which is a a topic we've discussed all the time on this show for the last 9 plus years um the the keys that you identify I'm just going to quickly go over them and then ask you to to flesh out like what these look like in your work your practice your research um, to, to build community, to help people connect and feel better, mm-hmm. uh, more a sense of belonging and, and protection, sharing information, unleashing people, creating a respectful environment, practicing radical candor, providing a sense of meaning and boosting member well-being. That's a lot. It's a lot. Um w- and and we can't cover it all, but I thought we we might dig into um, a couple of those. What's what's the one you want to start with in terms of what you've discovered about how to create community and how our listeners can actually start to practice some of the things that you write about? Well, respect would be one, since uh, you know that touches upon research in the past, and I do think you mentioned the idea of we struggle with that. You know where. I think a divided uh, nation and world at this point. And so I think just generally, you know, that that's um, been an issue and sadly a sense of rudeness and disrespect has been on the rise. Um, I think the idea of uniting people is, is important kind of laying the groundwork. So, but I'm happy to dig into any of them that you'd like. Well, um, (laughs) okay. So uh, creating a respectful environment, that sounds great. Yeah. Everybody wants that. It's not uh, not quite common enough for for us to to continue to be able to survive, let alone thrive as a species. Where do you start? Let's say a CEO calls you and says, hey, Professor Parath, uh, people are uncivil in this environment. I need to change that. Please help. Yeah, Um, I think that I'd start with uh, trying, which is the first step, which is uniting people, meaning bringing them together, uh, Mm -hmm. trying to form some sense of connection just so we we 
understand each other. Um, There's a sports example that I actually start with. This might be kind of odd, but uh, Phil Jackson and the Bulls, um, when he was coach of that NBA team, and he started in Chicago Bills, everybody, in case you're not familiar with the NBA. (laughs) Uh, and he actually would start the days in the film room, you know, where they were not talking about basketball or X and O's. And they were basically, um, he set the tone by being vulnerable and they talk, um, he had them reading books. He had them, you know, talking about ethics and gun control and things like that. But, um, what ended up happening is people were celebrating each other. They were crying in front of each other, you know, throughout the course of the year, such that like they got to know each other and um, they, you know, had a strong bond and went on to win championships and things like that. But it was remarkable how players commented that whether they were a star or whether they were kind of the 12th man, meaning not getting a lot of playing time, kind of a role player, so to speak, that they felt like such an incredible part of the team. And I think that that's something that we would like to see regardless of the team or community that you're involved in, that you feel a sense of, you can bring your whole self, you can be vulnerable, you feel a sense of belonging, uh, you feel a bond with people that have your back in good times and bad. And so I like that idea. I think it's easier said than done, yes. but I, I think that idea of being the leader, being vulnerable, bringing people together, connecting around topics that are outside of, let's say just our project goal or just, you know, our work goal is important these days and people want that and they need that. For sure. Let me uh, remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're with us. My guest today is Christine Porath, who's the author of Mastering Community, The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us from Surviving to Thriving. It's got tons of uh, contemporary examples of how to actually realize that super important aspiration. Um yeah, the Phil Jackson story is fascinating, especially since he's incorporating in his model of leadership of that amazing team and then other teams since then uh, from the lessons he learned from the Lakota Sioux, mm-hmm. uh, the in, indigenous um, communities in our country. Uh, I would recommend to you, Christine, if you don't know, uh, a guest from just a few episodes ago, um, Kevin Hancock of Hancock Lumber Industries, maybe you know him, um, told us a similar story on the show recently. I'll, I'll send you more information about him and you could just listen to the episode with him. It's a very similar kind of awakening uh, and, and incorporation of those principles. And yet, you know, the indigenous peoples of our nation are, uh, you know, terribly degraded and, and oppressed in, in contemporary society. So this kind of gets us around to the, to the question I, I want to really focus on because, you know, you identified this is hard to do. It's easier said than done, as you said. Uh, and, and often the people who are striving to connect people to each other in a meaningful, you know, deeply human way, they get stomped on. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you make it happen in a way that strengthens people and allows them to, to deal with the forces of, you know, uh, oppression? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think they talk in research about the power of shared experiences, Mm -hmm. you know, and trying to, again, in conversation, even um, share some of those experiences, ideally so that people can unite uh, in some way based on whether it's a certain background, a certain experience that they've had. Uh, what have you. I've heard of examples of leaders. There was a, a gentleman, Sanjay Amon, who uh, works for YouTube, actually. And one of the things that he did is he shared personal stories and and then would also suggest, like, uh, everyone listen to a certain album or, you know, try a certain recipe or, you know, and, and it varied and it was voluntary, but he tried to set the tone by being an open book and by mm-hmm. showing his human side through vulnerability. And, you know, he shared his team's meetings with a deep question card in which he sent to participants the day before. And they didn't have to speak up or answer the question. It was completely Mm -hmm. optional, but it allowed people to speak up and share their thoughts, their experiences and feelings in response to a deep question. And he told me that people felt, you know, a much deeper sense of humanity and, and a bonding experience. And what was difficult about that, do you think, for for him and for his community to to enact in, in such a way that it, it was, you know, uh, successful in achieving this sense of connection and openness and psychological safety? Yeah, well, I imagine it was hard for him to even bring up the idea, you know, like that's mm-hmm. not the norm for workplaces I've right. been involved with. You know, like of course. Um, that's homework, you know, so that may feel to some like, are they, you know, do they have to do this? What happens if they don't do this? How are they going to be looked at, you know, and in the time of the pandemic, even though he was doing this through the pandemic. So and he saw this as a positive and he was getting feedback that this was a positive. You know, I think for many people, they feel like not they I don't want one more thing on my plate like I don't want to think about anything else you know that's almost like homework and unnecessary homework Mm -hmm. and don't you know Mm -hmm. what I'm dealing with so Mm -hmm. you know I think um you know there's always that chance that people are going to not like your idea they may revolt there may be resentment about what they're you're asking them to do it may be outside the scope of their job Um, So all of that. And I think probably if it were me, you know, these deep questions of which I don't know a lot of them, um, my sense is like, you know, that that can be really problematic in terms of people's differences of opinions these days. You know, someone brings up politics and, you know, it's kind of like, uh oh, you know, (laughs) what you know, how are you going to react and what's going to be said and how are people not going to feel offended? So there's a lot of landmines, I think, right now, too, that could, you know, you you might step in. Uh, yeah, um, let's let's stay on that if we can, because, uh, you know, as you, you think about creating community and cultivating it, it's it's all about embracing variation and differences among us and, you know, rooted in a sense of our common humanity. Um, which is the you know important theme that runs throughout your book in in a really beautiful way. Um, what advice do you have for people and organizations these days with respect to respect of difference, particularly political differences, which are 
uh, you know, to use the hackneyed phrase, so polarized and polarizing these days. Yeah. What, what well, do you do about that? I think it's good to acknowledge that from the start, you know, just to say that there may be differences. I expect those. Uh, I think it's important that that we learn to respect people coming with different opinions. I think Adam Grant, uh, you know, it, it, UPenn uh, and Wharton, he has a lot of great advice on this. And his book, Think Again, is kind of something that could be discussed, you know, to frame this. Um, and just the idea that that you want information from kind of the other opinion or the other side and that you are going to try to be as open as possible. Um, and I would suggest that if you're facilitating this, you're asking questions. You know, you're coming at it trying to be um, as open-minded as possible and with a sense of like that growth mindset that you want to learn from it uh, and embrace it as much as possible. Not easy, again. <laughs> well, most people have a hard time resisting the impulse to, you know, to, to, to engage in combat when they encounter someone who is a threat to their ideology. Um, wh- wh- how do you advise people in terms of, you know, uh, that, that, C- that imaginary CEO who I referred to earlier coming to you to say, Hey, yeah, we want to build community in our, in our organization. And yet people are, uh, you know, screaming at each other or they're ignoring each other um, because they have different political views or different views about the role of, uh, I don't know, critical race theory and education, whatever it might be. What, what's, what's the best practice um, from your research uh, in terms of what, what a, a person in an executive role can do to set the tone Right. And to to really work through the the resistance, the the impulse to combat. Yeah, I think um, sharing a story is, is, you know, usually helpful and uh, oftentimes for a leader, a personal story, you know, and sometimes it may be a mistake that they made where they slipped up, where they overstepped, where they made an assumption, where they made a mistake, Um that had to do with that other viewpoint, let's say, or, mm. you know, um, that fractured, that led to a fracture, you know, I, I hear stories all the time about people and families um, and differences among family members and how that's, you know, hurt relationships that are near and dear to us and you don't want that to happen. And so what could you do better? Or what did you learn from an experience where you felt that, you know, you were really put down because of an opinion that you had, that you felt strongly about a political view. Um, And I think trying to remind yourself of what you share in common, in other words, what the research shows is whenever there's like a a bias, mainly an unconscious bias, that idea of identifying as, you know, we're both parents or we're both, you know, from the same city, we both cheer for the same team, we both you know, uh, have a certain belief that, you know, we might have different religious beliefs, for example, but hopefully we can rally around the goal of treating people right or treating people respectfully, you know, so kind of reminding people of identifying with some, whether it's a core value, we may see things differently or something like that. I think it's important for the leader to step up. And for example, this is somewhat of a different example, but uh, I had a CEO of a hospital system 
um, in a dinner the night before a talk share that he witnessed, uh, he was part of a, a meeting where a junior physician was presenting, super talented, and a senior physician just ripped into him, tore him to shreds, you know, as part of this presentation. And this was par for the course for this senior person. And the CEO sat there throughout the whole thing. And he felt terrible and awkward. And afterwards, he thought about it. And he thought, I'm the leader. Like, I should have said something. And I didn't. And and afterwards, he addressed it with the senior physician. And ultimately, that senior physician made another, uh, you know, belittled someone again like that and was let go. And so that became, I thought, an important part of the story, you know, for sure. But, um, but that behavior is not going to be tolerated here. Exactly. But I, mm-hmm. I asked him as part of this leadership retreat we were doing the next day, I said, well, I think you should share that story. You know? and, and he did. He got up there in front of everyone. He shared the whole story. He said, I felt terrible about it. This is what ultimately happened. But I am the leader. Um, it was awkward. And I, I never want you to feel like that person that was attacked did or put down Um you always have the ability to get up and walk away from that. You don't mm-hmm. have to take that. It's part of our norms. And I just, I heard people talking about that story afterwards yeah. in terms of, I don't have to take it. You know, I can report on this. Um, and the idea that people make mistakes, you know, even a top leader. Did he talk about why he didn't speak up at that first instance that he observed? Yeah. I mean, mainly he pointed to, it was awkward. I felt bad, but I didn't know what to do in the moment. Mm. Um, you know, I think he was, uh, maybe he didn't want to take a public stance, you know, Mm. he didn't come out and say, I didn't have courage to, but I think the idea of maybe not connecting the dots between this is my role to do this. And even if it's not the perfect forum, I can and should try to put Mm. an end to that, you know, public belittling, (laughs) You know, because it was constant. It wasn't just one comment. Yeah. So um, I want to talk about the courage required to um, cultivate community. When we return, we have to take a short break here, but don't go away, folks. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Christine Porath about her new book, Mastering Community. So stay with us. I am Stu Friedman. This is Working Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I'm Stu Friedman, your host. I am the founder of Total Leadership, which is a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping individuals and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life. My guest today is Christine Porath, who's a tenured professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. And uh, her work is about pretty much the same thing, finding harmony in our social relations and and how that helps us all to not only feel better, uh, to be healthier, but to to be able to get things done in a way that is um, more effective and and ultimately more long-lasting and sustainable. She's written... Uh, the bestseller, Mastering Civility. And today we're talking about her most recent work, which is called Mastering Community, The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us from Surviving to Thriving. 
So just before the break, Christine, we were talking about uh, courage and how the CEO in that wonderful example uh, who sat there watching a senior colleague berate a junior colleague and didn't do anything about it and felt bad about it, maybe guilty about it afterwards, and then finally did act in private um, because it was, as you were saying, awkward and difficult to speak up. Uh, what have you learned in your research uh, about creating community, about what what one must do to overcome those inhibitions to speak up and to and to to muster the courage uh, to to find the words, the language, the opportunity to to intervene. Well, I think it's a must-have. I mean, I think uh, it's really tough to have community without respect um, because people don't feel safe, you know, psychologically safe. Um, they they're not going to speak up about issues. They're not going to share their full selves. They're not going to be authentic, probably. Um, they're going to be holding back, you know, not bringing their full contributions to the, the team, the workplace, the community, whatever it, it is. And so I think protecting that sense of whether you call it psychological safety or respect is really paramount to people feeling um, accepted, uh, secure, you know, like that they even can be a, a member of this group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you have to rally yourself to, mm-hmm. to have the courage, um, if not in the moment afterwards and explain to both parties. And then I think the CEO did a wonderful job of sharing the story with others so that mm-hmm. they knew and that they could act on it because he was mm-hmm. very explicit about you don't ever have to take this. Like this is part of our norm, you know, our respect. Um, and regardless of who you are, meaning your physician or your um, a nurse, a staff member, what have you, that everyone deserves that level of respect and mm-hmm. we shouldn't be tolerating any less and mm-hmm. we should be holding each other accountable. Yeah. I think, I think really good organizations, what I've seen another, you know, great example of this coming to life was when there was a small government agency that enacted a civility campaign and they had 10 principles of civility and they just did a wonderful job reinforcing them. So they had a training that everyone attended at various times. They had the 10 principles on the back of their name badge. So people just knew these by heart. Basically they were plastered all over the place. And in my last training that I did, I had this gentleman who said, oh, yeah, we just call each other out on these. We say seven, dude, seven, or five, man, five. And this was, you know. Those numbers blue- represented yeah. the, the principles uh, of, of, yeah, of civil of, action. Civil of civil behavior. action, of, of what someone was messing up on, of what they should have been doing, you know, with mm-hmm. a colleague and, and weren't. So and, you call them it, out on seven, Christine? Yeah, number seven. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what what was seven? Do you recall? I don't recall. I should recall. It's been a well, while. But but, um, but they had it as a shorthand. I think your point is that it, it was sh- so embedded in their thinking that they were able to use the shorthand and they both knew what they were talking about. Yeah, exactly. And what was I thought really cool about the whole thing was there was a real mix between, you know, very professional 
people, you know, running physical plants and there were, you know, people that were janitors and gardeners and so forth. And this happened to be someone with his name on his shirt who was sitting there very comfortable to call someone out that, Mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of other places, this person had a lot more power and status than him. And he thought it's okay. Like we're all, we've all agreed that we're living by these. (laughs) And I know the 10. That takes a lot of consistent messaging and role modeling and identifying, you know, the behavior that's desired and as well as that, which is not desired. And I think you're this example of the CEO in the health care organization medical center, you know, demonstrated well, you know, the learning from a failure to intervene. And, and what's, I think, especially powerful about that, uh, example is that it speaks to the, you know, this, this is hard to do and you have to learn it. Um, mm-hmm. And because it doesn't come naturally, it's a lot easier to, to be silent Definitely. In, in the face of oppressive behavior taken by other people that you might be afraid to insult by, by bringing their, um, their uncivil actions uh, to light by articulating yeah. them, by identifying them, by indicating what their negative impact is. That takes practice and courage. And, you know, he didn't demonstrate it in the moment. That's what, that's, I think the best thing about that example is that, you know, I, I was afraid yeah. you know, he might've said it was something like that in his recounting the story. Um, and I need to be better at that. And so we all do. Yeah. Um, so in the remote world that so many of us are living in now, or in the hybrid world that is emergent or in the return to work world, whatever it is that you're, your life is like these days. Um, it's different than the way it was in the before times. How do all these issues of community uh, and and a sense of united, you know, humanity and respect that we are all benefiting from when it's there in our lives? How do you uh, make that happen when you're not with people physically? When you're not co-located? Yeah, well, I think you're striving for connection, which, as you said, is not not easy. Uh, I think this idea of, uh, you know, going back to the shared experiences, I think another thing that I've seen work really well is leaders uh, providing a question and saying, like, what's one thing that you've learned? What's one practice that you've come up with during the pandemic that has served you well? Meaning, and people might say like working out, you know, with a friend, taking a a walking, doing walking meetings, you know, on the phone versus on Zoom to break up the day, you know, whatever it may be, but very specific. And what I like about this is, you know, at some level, we're focusing on gratitude and, and what's working during the pandemic. We're sharing best practices we're sharing a piece of ourself, which is who am I? What's important to me? What am I experimenting with? And so I think it gives the folks in the meeting, let's say, a better sense of who you are, what, you know, what may be important to you, um, what your, you know, at least a small slice of your day looks like. And, and the nice thing is we can steal kind of, you know, some of these practices and start trying them ourselves. Um, so I, I love that one. You know, I think that that's been effective for groups. To be discovering or uncovering and then displaying what they've learned or how they've adapted to uh, a changed reality. Um, but I can imagine people listening thinking, yeah, that would be great. But 
I can't have the, you know, informal connection and offline conversation that happens as we're walking from one place to another uh, when we are all on a Zoom screen. Uh, so are there are there things that you have seen in, in your research and over the last couple of years, especially in your practice that help you to understand what people can do when when they are in in remote land in addition to um you know sharing their their insights from what they've tried and and what's worked for them yeah well i think i've also heard of leaders that have a go-to question like how can i help or you know what's a is there some kind of resource i can be supporting you with better you know during this time Mm -hmm. um so this idea of like quickly checking in there was a neat program uh, that Cisco was actually doing before the pandemic called Love and Loathe, which was Love and Load. Loathe, sorry, Loathe. Love and Loathe. Yeah. Loathe, L O A T H, Loathe. Yeah. And so the idea was that, you know, in these Pulse weekly surveys, you'd be answering a few questions on your well being and then writing one thing that you loved. And one thing that you loathed about the week. And so the feedback went to their leader uh, and the leader could check in about this, but kind of keep a pulse on how employees were doing. And so um, the CHRO actually shared that she was a really optimistic, you know, very positive person. But one of the weeks during the pandemic, she wrote on her, you know, feedback, I had a really heavy week. And Chuck Robbins, the CEO, saw this. She reports to him. And this was a late Friday afternoon. He scheduled an 8 a.m. meeting with her Monday morning to follow up because he knew that that was atypical for Fran. (laughs) And so this idea of keeping a pulse, and even if it's a couple questions, I've heard Zoom meetings starting out with, you know, write one emotion that you're feeling right now. And and so people, you know, a leader could... You do, you do that? How does yes. it work? Well, something very similar to that. I, you know, it, it, during classes or you know company presentations, I'll, whether it's you know twelve people or a thousand, I'll ask people, "How are you feeling right now?" Oh. Just give us a word. And if you don't want to do this, you don't have to. But it would be you know, yeah. useful for all of us to know how each of us is feeling. And uh, and then I'll I'll ask one or two people if they're willing to elaborate a bit. And then use that, you know, to help frame up what it is that we're about to get into. So, um, yeah, it's it's a great device. Please continue okay. with what you were saying about it. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you can teach us from there. Are there other ones that have used you've used that have been really effective? Well, I find that by doing that, you uh, you signal that you're concerned about and want to hear about how people are feeling now mm-hmm. and it it creates uh, a pool of information for everyone to see oh it's not just me that feels overwhelmed right now yeah and that's normal it normalizes you know the 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 anxieties and the sense of overwhelm or the fears that people have or you know the the enthusiasm and the hope for a better tomorrow that they're feeling as well um, yeah. let, let me remind listeners, this is work and life. And that's surely what we're talking about here on business radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. And I'm speaking with Christine Porath about her wonderful new book, Mastering Community, The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us from Surviving to Thriving. Um, 
We don't have that much more time, Christine, and I have so many more things I want to ask you about, including I wanted to make sure to get to this. What was most surprising to you? That's in your subtitle. The surprising ways coming together moves us to thriving. What surprised you most? I think how community really delivers uh, and amplifies our life in really rich ways. Um, And I guess the surprising piece for me was like, in all of these tactics, if you're doing it with a community, you're probably going to learn and grow in ways and feel better. Um, You know, one of the bits that I'm sure you know well, but it was fun for me to run across research showing like not only just moving, uh, you know, our muscles are like a pharmacy pumping hope molecules into our system while we're moving. So that in and of itself is like, you know, a reason to move. Um, But you get these amplifying effects if you're doing it together, if you're doing it outside, if you're doing it with music. But this idea of coming together to do things, whether they are, you know, already beneficial for us, but we get this like bonus uh, and it really, I don't know, from my own experience, not just with exercise, but uh, it really can, you know, lift us and, in really meaningful ways um, and ways that not only improve our outcomes, but our lives. So, you know, for example, I, uh, I had an opportunity to go, you know, kind of live with the University of North Carolina Chapel Hills women's soccer team um, this fall and learn how they built the culture because Anson Dorrance was featured in this book. So that grew out of this. And it was fun for me. I mean, I love sports. Um, you know, we've talked about some examples, but to be a part of a community, it kind of pulled me out and got me unstuck from a lot of the isolation. And it was just you know, it made my life so much more meaningful. And I had friends and family say, like, you sound different. Like They could tell just from talking to me on the phone or whatever, that my sense of thriving was just entirely different. And I think that was like the book in action for me <laughs> was, you know, that um, sometimes we need each other to help to help us, you know, and that was true of like the shared medical appointments that I talk about in chapter one, It was true of, you know, we started with the mighty and, you know, initially talking about how are we going to help each other tackle health challenges? Well, it's actually much more than that. The fundamental problem that my brother Mike for us said that he was solving was he realized isolation and that matters, you know, for us. So I think the, the part that surprised me was like the importance of community in almost all aspects of our lives. You close your wonderful book by speaking about Ubuntu, which is a Bantu term meaning humanity, and that we can't really be humans if we are alone or entirely isolated. So um, tell us about the meaning of that, of that idea and, and what, it, what it implies for what you would wish to see come as a result of people accessing your work, your book, and the other things that you do? Well, I think um, there was a team example of Doc Rivers using this with the Celtics to kind of, again, bond them. And it became, you know, the fact that they were connected in ways that we talked about with Phil Jackson. But the, the other example that we can all do if we're not a member of a team, let's say, is um, Carla Pinero Sublet, who talked about 
the idea of she was just feeling disconnected from, in this case, her husband and her kids. And um, they took time off. They ended up, uh, she took a sabbatical from work uh, to recharge and reconnect with them. They ended up traveling. um, So that was, but she said, what we realized is we could do this anywhere. The important thing was they left technology behind. So they ended up traveling with just like a notebook computer that they would log on to let family know, you know, once a week or something that they were alive and and so forth. But the idea was really disconnecting from technology and other things and plugging into each other and being attentive. And, you know, they saw the beauty of community all over the place. Um, but that I think in today's society, that's not easy, you know, that we're, we might right. always be on or something like that. And so, for her, I got the sense, um, and others talked about this as well, is like prioritizing people, you know, and and doing taking small actions, mm. putting the phone away for a certain amount of time. Mm. I mean, I have executives that I've worked with that, you know, they may check, they may have a deal with their partner or spouse that they check email or are on the phone at the beginning of the day and then the end of a Sunday, but otherwise they disconnect. And they said, it's life-changing. You know, like we actually... Are, we we thrive so much better as individuals, as a couple, as a family. And so I think that there are steps that we can take like that. Um, they're not easy. Again, going back to easier said than done. But I think once we try them, uh, they can be reinforcing. You know, we can feel happier. We can feel healthier. Um, and so hopefully taking some of those actions leads us to feel more connected to others in ways that, you know, help us lift us as individuals and, and collectively. And and I want to make sure that I ask you before we have to wrap up uh, a question about a topic that I've been asking everybody about uh, recently on the show. And that is about, um, you know, our, our natural habitat, um, in terms of the, you know, the collective action that's required to save it for our future um, ability to not just, you know, not, not the high-minded thriving, but simply survival. What, what does your work say to those of us who are, you know, urgently concerned about um, the, the, the rapid change in our climate and, and what we can do to, stave off uh it's it's um it's it's destruction yeah well i think um you know banding together uniting together and trying to take efforts you know however small they feel to Mm. do something good for the environment is a great first step uh one of the examples that i liked in the book that was actually it was Marriott so they have these take care ambassadors and so this take care program they have uh, you know one of the ideas is because they have 700,000 employees all over the world you know it's localized so anyone can step up and be an ambassador in it and kind of make it their own so Hmm. for example in Thailand you know you had people that were cleaning the beaches you had people saving sea turtles you had people you know so I think That idea. And so I I heard about all different kinds of examples, depending on, you know, where they were geographically. But I think the cause was we're not only taking care of ourselves or, you know, customers in their case, but we're taking care of society. And in this case, 
you know, your point, the climate, the the earth and so forth. And so I think that's kind of a neat way to go about it is where people own it and take care of their corner, their neighborhood, you know, their, the, that area um, in ways that they're taking actions and then hopefully sharing that with people so that it spawns, you know, others to do something similar. The old phrase, think global, act local. Yeah. Comes to I mind. love that. Much more articulate than I was. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's, it was, it was a, 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 a well-seasoned and uh, uh, yeah, powerful slogan for just what you are describing. I think with, with the really wonderful example from, from Marriott, there are so many wonderful examples in your great book, Mastering Civility. Um, we, we are going to need to wrap it up here though. So I wonder if you could tell us in closing here, um, just how people can learn more about your your new book and the other work you're doing, and perhaps one final word of advice uh, based on the um, you know the wisdom that that is that is so well described and illustrated in mastering community. Uh, thank you. Uh, so I have a website. Uh, it's just christineporath.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn primarily. And at PORATC is Twitter. And uh, in terms of closing advice, I would just suggest that we we do prioritize community because I know from my own experiences and from seeing that of the mighty in other places, coming together really can help us move from surviving to thriving. Thanks so much for producing this wonderful work um, and for sharing it with us today, Christine. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, it's really been a pleasure and very enlightening and inspiring. Uh, the examples here are fantastic and I, I and and very clear in, in uh, you know instigating you to think about things that you can do in your world to create a greater sense of connection and community, which we so desperately need. So I, I hope uh, everyone listening will get a copy of Mastering Community and discover for themselves how they can help to create a greater uh, feeling of that elusive yet crucial um, idea for, for all of us. So thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of this show on Mondays at noon Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email me Friedman at Wharton.upen.edu. And uh, what I've been doing the last few months is asking you to think about an idea for a song that relates to the concept of home. Um, and uh, the one that I've chosen for today is Woody Guthrie's I Ain't Got No Home in This World Anymore, which is a classic folk tune that I think speaks to uh, the ideas that Christine Porath has brought to us in terms of what we can do to create a feeling of home and connection for, for all of us, especially those who don't have power in, in our society. So um, what songs come to mind as you think about the concept of home? Listen to Woody Guthrie's I Ain't Got No Home in This World Anymore. And uh, you can find free podcast versions of this show at totalleadership.org, all kinds of other free resources there. Um, thanks to Patty Hall and our sound engineer, 
Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I ain't got no home. I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker. I go from town to town. And the police make it hard wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore.